0: privileged today in this final stretch in 1 Corinthians to start talking about the biggest issue in the entire book. The entire book culminates in chapter 15, and it is a protracted discussion of and defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I would have you know that we live in an age where there is a profound lure even to Christians to not profess belief in the resurrection any longer. If only our faith could be a faith based on moral platitudes, based even on the golden rule as primary, rather than the doctrine, even more the good news of Christ's resurrection in history, people would receive it in droves. Paul is about to tell us what is of first importance to us as Christians, and he does not mention ethics, he does not mention ideas, he mentions good news, profound and basically good news. What we're about to read contains perhaps the earliest Christian creed ever spoken and ever passed around by believers. Verses 3 to 4 of this passage were probably representative of a creed that existed before 37 AD, that is, within four years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. What we're about to read in verses 3 to 4 of this passage is the heart and soul of Christianity. Let us search our souls to determine whether it is the heart and soul of our creed. what we believe bow your heads with me mighty god efforts at reinventing the christian faith is something not nearly so offensive not nearly so difficult to believe as the miracles of the new testament tell us have been around since the beginning lord god we live in an age of disbelief so proud about our abilities and scientists thinkers and philosophers That we too often react to the good news of Christ's death and resurrection with the same sense that this will not sell in our culture or to our neighbor. Relieve us of this belief. Lord God, we pray that we may leave this place celebrating the central work of Jesus Christ above all else. That we might confess it as of first importance as Paul in the early church did. In Jesus' name we pray by your Holy Spirit. Amen. You've got your Bibles. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. When we're finished, I'll say this is God's word, and you may respond, thanks be to God. We'll sing a short verse together, the glory of Patry. Please, follow along with me. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelfth. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, Trinitas... For the last year and a half, we have been expounding this epistle to the Corinthians, and we have seen two things. The two major problems from which this church suffered was denial that Paul had any special authority over the church and denial that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. It may seem to many of us that these two things are totally unrelated, that they have nothing to do with one another. In fact... In fact, they are tightly related, even intertwined. To make that point, let us just consider this basic doctrine that Paul has to speak to the Corinthians. He reminds them that this is what he came originally preaching and that this is what they believed or so professed to believe at one time. It's an ancient formula or creedal statement that consists of four basic parts. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the 12. The Corinthian church has come to deny this, but in a roundabout sort of way, and you should be aware. Most false teachings do not come with a full frontal denial of what the Christian faith teaches. They don't deny it head on. They reinterpret biblical doctrines to their liking. The Corinthian church had come to believe that perhaps maybe Jesus' resurrection is a purely spiritual metaphorical matter. Maybe all that was meant when we say Jesus rose from the dead is that he died a physical death and was released from his physical body to have a purely spiritual existence afterward. Maybe that's what it means to come to life after death. Others, it seems, may have believed this, that Jesus was in fact really just a spiritual being the whole time. He only appeared to be a physical man. And therefore, whatever you saw on the cross of a man dying, it was more of an illusion than it was a reality. Perhaps he was always only a spirit. (laughs) Others had thought that maybe by resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we mean is that he was raised by spiritual enlightenment or understanding above a common, mere physical way of living, that his life was more in his head than it was in his body. Still others may have believed that Jesus was a real physical man, that he really did die, but he came to life again in our hearts when we believed in him and started to accept his moral teaching. Do you understand that all of these different variations fundamentally deny that Jesus rose from the dead bodily? There's a great appeal to thinking like this, It turns the gospel of good news into the gospel of timeless truths, that our spirits have a sort of immediate access to God, and if only we would be enlightened and more spiritual, we could, as it were, rise above this mere physical life into something more sublime. So it is this is what resurrection means, then we can all be resurrected right now at this moment. And that is what many of the Corinthians believed. If you could take in this secret teaching and ethic of Christ, you would, as it were, be resurrected out of a mere physical existence into a spiritual one, and it explains all of their sinful behavior. If what's really true about you is just your mind and your spirit, guess what? What you do with your body doesn't matter. And so the Corinthians engaged in all sorts of debauchery and immoral behavior with their bodies. Because they said, the flesh doesn't matter. Our spirits and our minds are saved. One prophet of our age, by the name of Lady Gaga, says, Well, do what you want want with my body. But my mind... But my voice, you can't have. This is the Corinthian error in modern garb. This also explains why the people did not feel the need to obey Paul or heed his authority. If at the end of the day, the gospel is just about philosophy, why would you need an apostle to tell you about it? We figured it out, Paul. We understand the resurrection better than you do. We've surpassed you, is what they were teaching. Friends, I'll have you know this. The earliest Christian heresy did not involve denying that Jesus was God. It involved denying that Jesus was a real flesh and blood, tangible man who died for our sins and rose from the dead. All throughout the New Testament, therefore, you read things like this. First John four two. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, he'll go on to say, Those who don't are not. Second John seven. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus is coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist, he says. Paul, in one of his other epistles, 2 Timothy 2, 17, says that there are heretics among you. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Which means that all of us, if we've been spiritually enlightened, have already been resurrected. This was a heresy. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians in an even more confrontational letter, you Corinthian church, you've begun to believe in another Jesus whom we have not preached, a different spirit and a different gospel because you are denying these basic truths of first importance about the resurrection. Trinitas church, I hope you are keenly aware that this Corinthian error is alive and well today. This is no relic of the past. It has plagued the church for every single generation of her existence in one form or another, and it has perhaps plagued the modern church worse of all. I'm going to tell you a brief story about a theologian who is known as the father of liberal theology. His name is Friedrich Schleiermacher. I'm going to be clear. When I use the word liberal, it has absolutely nothing to do with the social and political issues of our (laughs) day— Schleiermacher would have been a conservative by far and away on all of those issues what we mean by liberal is a sort of progressive sense that the old way of believing in miracles and resurrection is somehow from a bygone era and we can no longer believe it i'll tell you the story Schleiermacher was born in 1768 in poland western poland close to germany Schliermacher's great-grandfather was a man named Daniel Schliermacher. He was part of an apocalyptic cult. Take everything you think of when you hear apocalyptic cult, and that was true of this one. They were called the Zionites. The leader of the cult believed that him and his second wife were going to give birth to the next Messiah. That's what they thought, okay? So classic apocalyptic cult. Very thankfully, he came out of this cult, and Schliermacher's father, Gottlieb, He actually became a chaplain in the Prussian Reformed Church. Prussia is just that part of Germany where Berlin is. And many of you might think, Germany, I'm thinking Lutherans. But in fact, the monarchy in Germany were Reformed. That's us, you guys. That's us. Well, in any case, Schleiermacher, having been born to a pastor, his father wanted him to have a great theological education. He was a very smart kid. The first place he sent him in his teens was to a school that was run by pietists. Pietists taught that the Christian faith wasn't so much about doctrine as it was primarily about a way of life, living according to the golden rule. So the problem was, Schleiermacher had a lot of intellectual questions, so he wasn't quite satisfied with this sort of education. He went on to the University of Halle, which is in Wittenberg, where the great... Martin Luther once resided, and the Reformation began. But at that university, the sort of theology that prevailed was called theological rationalism. They would only embrace those doctrines of the Christian faith that could be proven by pure reason alone, and often their proofs were pretty pathetic. Schleiermacher, therefore, his faith began to wane. He was even exposed to critical views of Scripture. You might notice when we come here, guys, we presuppose that what the Bible says is totally true, without error, and infallible. Schleiermacher was taught to come to the Bible with suspicion that maybe its authors meant to deceive. Maybe they contradicted one another and they lied. And as a result, in 1787, Schleiermacher wrote a bombshell letter to his pastor father, which said, I cannot believe that he who called himself the Son of Man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. He broke his father's heart. Whether this sort of a story that I'm in the midst of telling is immediately appealing to you or not, I will tell you one thing right now. I cannot count the number of Christian parents who have lost their kids to unbelief in similar ways. So I hope you'll pay attention. This is the plague that so many of us suffer when it comes to our faith. We are exposed to the thinking of the world and the Bible and its teaching no longer seems relevant. Despite his lapse into unbelief, Schleiermacher did somehow finish his theological education and after being a tutor for a little while, he became a chaplain at a hospital in Berlin. So apparently that chaplaincy didn't require much in terms of what you believed. just had to have a degree. But he began to change in the 1790s. He actually began to reinvent the Christian religion in a way that would be appealing to modern hearts and minds. He even wrote a book called On Religion Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers, where he said to the populace at large Christianity is not primarily about events in history, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It is more about a broad religious feeling. Friends, have you ever met someone who said, I'm not religious, I'm not Christian, but I think there's something bigger out there. Schleiermacher would say, then Christianity is for you because it's really just about that broad sense and feeling of something bigger. Schleiermacher said that religion is the feeling and intuition of the universe, the sense of the infinite. And on his doctrine, Jesus was not God who took on human flesh. Jesus was a man who had this religious feeling preeminently and always, who had the deepest sense of God, and therefore could be called the Son of God. Do you see the difference between an orthodox doctrine of Jesus and what Schleiermacher was saying? Jesus was just a man controlled by the constant sense of God's presence everywhere and in himself. As a result, those things that Paul's talking about here don't matter much, like the resurrection. It doesn't really matter that much, says Schleiermacher. He says the disciples recognized Jesus as the Son of God without having the faintest premonition of his resurrection and ascension. And we too may say the same of ourselves. You hear what he just said? We can all be good Christians by having a general sense of God and maybe not believing in the resurrection at all. You know what the lesson of Schliermacher's story is? That doctrine I just told you, it sells. It sells better than Starbucks. It sells better than Tesla. It sells better than any great invention that you have ever thought of. Schleiermacher, when he begins publishing this belief this vision of christianity is widely recognized as one of the preeminent thinkers of his day one of the preeminent theologians of his day it's noteworthy that while he is developing this view he gets into a six-year romantic relationship with another pastor's wife but that's neither here nor there in the thinking of liberal christianity because he had the deepest sense of deity Schleiermacher went on to become the pastor of the most important Reformed church in Berlin, Trinity Church. He also, at the same time, became the professor of theology at the new University of Berlin. So he occupied two of the most profound and prestigious roles in culture at once. He's instrumental in uniting the German Reformed and the German Lutheran Church in Prussia together as one around this common liberal theology. He even had the power to challenge King Frederick William III, king of Prussia at the time, fighting for religious rights for the church. And at his funeral, friends, I'll have you know, 30,000 people followed his casket as it was led through the streets and eventually put into the ground. That is how popular this man was. I will have you know very simply, If you go around championing a Christianity without the resurrection, you, if you can do that well, will sell many books. You will be offered university positions 10 times as quickly and as frequently as someone who believes in the resurrection. You will be regarded as highly enlightened and spiritual. You will be incredibly popular. You will be incredibly popular and you may even have thousands of people at your funeral. You might even attain a sort of Greek vision of eternity where every time someone talks about theology, your name comes up because you're that important. But you know what you will have lost? You will have forfeited the gospel. The gospel tell you three very simple things that paul tells us about the gospel that just doesn't work for Schleiermacher. the gospel presupposes bad news if Schleiermacher were right the very worst news for all of you is that you didn't tap into your inherent deity and your inherent sense of god in which case you really weren't ever that far from god in the first place let me tell you the bad news friends Each one of us has a sense of God. But insofar as that sense is divorced from the idea that we are hopelessly guilty before him, that sense of God is a mirage and a lie. The gospel begins with this bad news. That salvation is not such an individualist matter that each one of us can just tap into ourselves and our own conscience and find God. God. We've rather fallen into sin by our common father Adam, and we were born into this world rebels against our Creator. The gospel is not this egalitarian concept that each one of us has equal access to God right here and now just by being us. If anything, we're equally estranged. The gospel is not about modern rationalism that says we can get rid of those things that seem irrational to the faith and just hang on to Jesus' teaching. We can't do it. And the gospel is certainly not about our autonomous freedom to just be more godlike. The gospel says, in fact, we're in bondage to sin and we can't be set free from it. But the good news. The good news that follows is that despite our determined, unrelenting rebellion against our Creator, God became flesh in the man Jesus Christ. The man Jesus Christ did not discover a sense of deity. God became flesh, and He died, as the first sentence of this creed says, He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This gospel couldn't be discovered by science or by philosophy or by exploration. The only thing that could have pointed us to it was God's word in scripture. He died as a substitute. Not just bearing a physical death that we all deserve and that we all face ahead, but he bore the infinite wrath of God on the cross in human time. The creed continues that he was buried just in case you thought the death we were talking about was metaphorical or the resurrection just the same. He'd have, you know, it's the sort of death where you put someone in a tomb and in the ground, that type of death. In case you were wondering, he literally died. He literally suffered. And it continues that on the third day he Rose again, according to the scriptures. That is to say, he had a physical, bodily resurrection. Not a resurrection that happens in your heart, which wouldn't be on the third day, but on many days, but a real resurrection in calendar time. Three days after he was entombed. And again, you could only know about this grand truth that bodies will be raised from the grave by the scriptures. This gospel presupposes bad news, but it is good news beyond belief. Second truth about this gospel that I would have you know is that how the gospel even comes to us is a grave offense that strikes the sensibilities of mere men. The fourth part of this creed has this curious line that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12 apostles. Do you know what this means? It means that the good news, the greatest news in human history, does not come by human discovery of any kind. It comes as news because it's about grace, and grace, like news, is just given. It's just given. And it is given to people irrespective of their credentials. The people that are mentioned are nobodies. The gospel was not discovered, nor did it come to philosophers, scientists, explorers, nobles, kings, conquerors, or even rabbis. The gospel came to fishermen, and it came through fishermen so that we could know that it was of grace and it didn't come because of the greatness of men or the credentials of men. Paul goes on to list a number of nobodies to whom the gospel came, in case we were confused. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. 500 who? 500 nobodies! Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, who was a peasant and a nobody, also himself a nobody. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. He says, friends, guess what, Corinthians? I know you love wisdom. I know you love power. I know you love nobility, but guess what? The gospel comes from the least, even weirdos like me. He describes himself in three ways, that the apostles were excuse me, the Corinthians were probably describing Paul as a way to denigrate his authority. Paul often quotes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and they were probably saying things like this about him, that Paul is untimely born. Now, this word is extremely offensive. Untimely born is a very nice way to put it. It really means a miscarriage or an abortion or a freak birth. He says, the gospel came to me as a freak, as a freak birth. I'm born into this position, not even naturally. And the Corinthians were probably saying this about Paul. Paul's not even a real apostle. The 12, they walked with him and talked with him for three years. But Paul was knocked off a horse, like a weirdo, a freak, born last of all. Paul says, you got it right. That's exactly what I am. Paul says he was least of the apostles. The word Paul actually means small or least. They were saying, we don't have to listen to this guy. He's the least and the lowest. And he says, you know what, you're right. That's exactly what I am. I'm the least and I'm the lowest. They probably said that Paul didn't even be, wasn't even fit to be called an apostle because he once persecuted Christians. And he says, you're right. I had no credentials that commended me to this office, but it was given to me of grace because this office is not about how smart I am or what I've discovered. It is about announcing good news. And the gospel comes like news not like geometric proofs. Paul had such a profound sense of divine grace. He said, this is all of grace. Everything I do is an expression of grace, and there is nothing that so offends a modern world like grace. To the world of Schleiermacher and to the world of the high and mighty of intellect, they will always be saying, how is it that these nobodies got to be the leaders and authorities and the witnesses. Kids, listen to me, kiddos. When you go around and you tell people that Jesus rose from the dead, you are declaring something more profound than what the greatest scientists in the world know. You are declaring a greater and more awesome truth than Einstein ever discovered or any explorer of space and the ends of the universe. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it is news. It is so simple, it is simply given to you, and it is the most important truth in all of reality. This is the great offense of the gospel. I want to say to you in this room, if you're an adult, and uh, you find yourself, when people start having high, abstract, philosophical, even theological discussion, you're like, wow. That is not for me. Guess what? It doesn't have to be for you to be a Christian because the heart and soul of this thing is just good news. That is simple as simple can be that a man died in our stead and in our place and he rose again from the dead and you don't even have to know how. It's just the sheer grace of God. This is a place for you. Jesus told us that the world would hate us if we proclaimed that the answer to everything comes as good news simply announced by nobodies. Jesus said in John 15:18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own, but I chose you out of the world because of this, because of this, the world hates you. Trinitas Church, if we could just go around talking about a Christianity that's about good ideas and good behavior, the world would love us. When we declare news that seems contrary to reason, they will hate us. One great theologian by the name of J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism in 1922. Talking about liberal Christianity, he talks about how it is literally a different religion. A religion not based on the actual resurrection of Christ is no real religion. A religion that replaces these historical facts for mere good ideas. There's no Christianity at all. Listen to what he says. Listen to this point. All the ideas of Christianity might be discovered in some other religion, yet there would be in that other religion no Christianity. For Christianity depends not upon a complex of ideas, but upon the narration of an event. And without that event, the world in the Christian view, is altogether dark and humanity is lost under the guilt of sin. There can be no salvation by the discovery of eternal truth, for eternal truth brings not but despair because of sin. But a new face has been put upon the blessed thing that God did when he offered up his own begotten son. Christianity isn't about ideas, friends it's not about codes of ethics it is about events that change the world the simplest among us can speak them and this leads us to our third point this liberal theology of our day this corinthian heresy of the early church is no real good news or alternative at all it is the worst and most despairing news liberal theology is quite frankly flat out self-defeating and crushing To put it simply, your very best ideas cannot take care of your most basic needs. I'll give you an experiment. Try it tonight. Take your very best ideas, your very best memories, your most happy thoughts, and instead of making dinner, take those ideas, put them in a blender, make them into a sausage, and try to eat them tonight and tell me if you cease to be hungry. Good ideas cannot save your body. It cannot save your soul. These good ideas cannot feed you. And you'll be left starving if you rely on them for your most basic needs. Because you are a body and a soul. And you need a salvation that saves the whole of you. Liberal theology cannot do that because there is no resurrection to speak of. There is no Christ's body to feast upon in anticipation of a resurrection from the dead. Your best visions of morality, they cannot make you more moral. Look at Schleiermacher, who was an adulterer in the midst of articulating this theology. Your very best religious feelings are flat out fleeting and whatever profound, numbing sense of God you have in any given moment, it will leave you from moment to moment. Even Schleiermacher recognized this. Therefore, he spoke of the Christian faith. He recognized in church every given Sunday, you might not have this feeling of God. But the reason why it's a church is he said at least one of us might be having that feeling. Well, all the better. What good does that do? For you and me. At the end of the day, historically, liberal theology has ushered in more widespread unbelief than out-and-out atheism has. Friends, what this all speaks to is that the good news of the gospel is our salvation is not secured by beliefs or ideas that we hold, but by a Savior who holds us. Do you see the difference between you and me having to maintain a feeling of dependence on God to be saved, to be united to him versus a God who by matter of fact gripped you in his hand and made you his? Paul puts it this way. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, and by which also you are saved. We are saved presently and certainly by what Christ did and not by what we do We are not even saved by our mustering of a belief in Christ. We are rather saved by Christ himself creating a belief in us. Beautiful thing about Paul's wording is he says that you are currently saved, that's present tense, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. What does that mean? You are saved now if and only if you hold fast and persist, which is as much as to say if you are really saved, you will persist. If you happen not to believe, Paul says your faith was actually in vain and you were never saved. There could not be a more clear teaching to the effect that a believer cannot lose his salvation. I simply ask you right now, if you have the faintest belief in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, rest assured he owns you forevermore. This is good news in contrast to salvation by good ideas, good behaviors, or good feelings. This is the news we proclaim every Sunday. Friends, I hope this creates for you an urgency for the lost. Your neighbor does not have an inherent access to salvation by searching within their soul. They are hellbound apart from good news that you and I profess to have and let us therefore have a sense of urgency to share it with them. Oh, it will be uncomfortable, it will be odd, but they need it. Nothing else can save them. Trinitas Church, I hope you have a sense of urgency for professed Christian brothers. This lapse into the Corinthian error, it begins by downplaying the authority of Paul, which in our day means downplaying the authority of the New Testament. Do you have a friend? Do you know someone who claims to be a Christian but always airs their doubts? about the authority of scripture. It won't be long. It won't be long apart from the grace of God before they end up denying Christ and their very faith is proven to have been in vain. I hope you have an urgency for them. They desperately need the gospel. But I'm gonna tell you one last thing. Maybe many of us are sitting here thinking that we reside in very safe territory. We don't tend to downplay the importance of the resurrection. We don't fall into the same error as Schleiermacher and the generations before us. The last thing I want to tell you is about an insidious error that exists among evangelicals. That's you and me. So many of us, when we tell the gospel, we completely forget to mention the resurrection at all. How many of us, when you tell the gospel to someone, you say it's that Jesus died for your sins? That's it. Almost as if It would be just fine if Jesus stayed dead. There is this tendency among evangelicals to so treat the resurrection like a mere economic exchange that Jesus is kind of like a currency who gets spent to save us and once the money's been spent, well, it's gone. I'm not sure why he had to rise from the dead. I had a pastor friend tell me very frankly once that he had no idea why it was important that Jesus rose from the dead. Let me explain it to you. The paradoxical, mind-blowing fact of the gospel is that Jesus is not just the sacrifice, he's also the priest. He's not just the currency, he's also the payer. As the currency and the sacrifice, he wears our sin, bears God's eternal wrath, and he bears it to the grave, and he puts it in the ground, and he gets rid of it forever. But as the priest and the buyer... He can't stay in the ground. It's all very simple, friends. If someone owed you $2 million, you'd be really mad. If your neighbor, who you always really liked, said, hey, I'll pay the debt, you wouldn't be as mad anymore. You'd be happy to have it paid off. But I'd ask you this. Would your feeling about your neighbor be more or less positive after they paid that $2 million on account of another? You would, in fact, grow your great appreciation for him let me explain something to you when jesus obeyed his father to the point of death jesus the payer and the priest he was preeminently celebrated by his father as the greatest of all men as the man most deserving of his affection and resurrection and therefore jesus rising from the dead was a necessity following his perfect sacrifice because god loved him as most righteous and even said today Today, I've begotten you. Not that he wasn't begotten in eternity, but today, at the completion of his work, it was clear that this Jesus was the most righteous man to ever live. He had to rise. Friends, there's a sense in which we could say the resurrection is simple. He is risen. Do you know why that declares the whole gospel? It's very simple because if Jesus is risen, it means he once died. But if he's risen, he mustn't have died for our sins. Otherwise, rather his sins, he'd still be in the grave. He is risen means that he died and he died for other men's sins. And he's the only man in the world who became the more righteous and the more profoundly obedient on the other side of it. There's a sense in which that statement is the whole gospel in itself. Believer, I hope you don't just view Jesus as a currency who bought you. I hope you view him as the new man, your very purchaser. A new man to whom you must be united and in whom is all your hope and peace of resurrection and eternal life. It's the gospel. If you're with us today and you've never heard these things before, I'll have you know, yes, we're a little bit crazy in this room. By the standard of the world, we believe that a man came and died for our sins in our stead and rose from the dead. We pray that you will too. There's no hope in anything else. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we have looked at one of the earliest formulaic statements of the Christian church. It's so simple that a child could repeat it. It's so simple that so many of the children in this church have repeated it. Been regarded as true believers come to this communion table. God, there is something painfully offensive about the idea that salvation comes by good news because it means that we don't have access to salvation in our hearts or in ourselves. It means that we are totally dependent on people whom we tend to regard as nobody's but who were themselves the recipients of the very sort of grace that we need because we too are nobodies. Mighty Lord and God, we pray that we would leave this place believing as of first importance, holding up as the heart and soul of our belief that we have a Savior who once died but rose again, that we may have everlasting life. May we leave celebrating that, meditating on that, never in the least forgetting that, having an urgency for our neighbor who does not believe that. We ask his Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit, amen.